The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. I'm Alex Spring, but this time I won't be with you for long. This month, the podcast hit the road. We went to Adelaide and recorded our film club event at the Mercury Cinema. Before our talk, we screened a restoration of the 1976 Australian classic film Storm Boy, a film about a boy and his pelican. Afterwards, our film critic Luke Buckmaster led a conversation on the success of the Australian film industry and the issues that surround the restoration of films. He spoke with film reviewer Margaret Pomerantz and Michael Lobenstein, the CEO of the National Film and Sound Archive. Welcome to the Guardian Film Club, everybody. Uh, my name is Luke Buckmaster. I'm the film critic for The Guardian Australia and uh, joined by two terrific champions of, of Australian uh, cinema, Margaret Pomeranz and Michael Lobenstein. And uh, wow, what a, t- what a terrific way to see Storm Boy, such a terrific film, uh, such a terrific restoration. Yeah, and to see it with so many kids in the audience yeah. too. No. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, very grateful, Michael, you didn't restore it in 3D. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because when, when the lights went out and, and after I had talked about restoration, and I thought, well, look, we, we always assume we know what restoration is anyway. But I thought, oh, God, I hope nobody gets the idea that it's now going to be with CGI and in 3D and all of that because that would be terrible. As much as we love Mr. Percival, we might not need that big, long snoz coming at us in, in, the third, in the third dimension. But I thought just before we start the conversation um, about the film and, and broader talk about the Australian film industry, for those who are interested, which presumably is, is right about everybody uh, right about now, um, I'll provide a little bit of an update on the life of one of the stars of the film, the greatest star of the film, uh, Mr. Percival. For those who don't know, after becoming an international movie star in the 90, 1970s, Mr. Percival reportedly lived a, a rather low-key life. He moved to Adelaide Zoo in 1988. He flew off into that great big ocean in the sky in 2009 in his mid-30s and was apparently one of the nicer pelicans uh, in the zoo. <laughs> Um, although uh, it did not sound like a pushover, I'll read something that his zookeeper said in 2009 wow. uh, to ABC News. He said, Mr. Percival was quite willing to accept a pat here and there sometimes, uh, but he could also be quite feisty and give us a bit of a slap with his beak if he was hungry. Uh, Mr. Percival also fathered seven chicks with his partner, Alto, uh, so he lives on... Uh, in many ways, as, as David in the will film, say, you know, a bird like him life. never die. <laughs> no, he really is a star, isn't he? He is indeed. It's, um, you know, it's amazing that the film has endured so well. It's one of those films that just seems like it doesn't really get any older. Well, I wonder why that is. What do you put that down to? For me, I mean, it's... it's Funny because I, I didn't grow up with Storm Boy because I, I grew up overseas and in like speaking another language, German, and, and, and just wasn't wasn't aware of the film and really only became aware of it when I came here to Australia. But it's uh, I th- I think the reason why it doesn't age and why it holds up so well perhaps is because it's so it's so sparse. I mean, there's there's very little. If if, if you think of it, it's not only that there is no 3D and no CGI, um, but there is hardly any word spoken in the first couple of minutes of the film. There is so little that is explained about the background. So it really is a film that, that 
that has confidence in its audience that you can find like your way through that life of the boy so you don't need to explain a lot like start off with saying oh here is a boy who lives alone with his father that's because no no I mean that takes ages until yeah. you actually find out what happened to the mother yeah? it's almost at the end of the film and that's 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 a great thing I think that makes it age really well because because it's it's got a univer something really universal about it mm. but the other thing is and I've criticized a lot of Australian films and filmmakers for not being able to get to the emotional heart of their film and and this does it it really knows how to touch you and move you and and I I think you know that that ability to connect emotionally with an audience is is so key to a film's longevity. You've uh, you've interviewed David Goldpillil a couple of times over the years, Margaret. Has Stormboy ever um, came into to conversation there? Is it any idea of what he sort of thinks of the film these days? Uh, I did well, many years ago, maybe about ten years ago. Do. Uh, a, a session with David at the Sydney Opera House and we did go through just about all of his films it's 10 years ago my memory's hopeless <laughs> and he's got so many great films to his name yeah. oh, it's a rather just, large catalogue you know, and, and that's the thing he's got such a physicality on screen mm. he owns that body as it moves through space, yeah, it's, it's almost like a dancer, isn't yeah. he? Well, like he it's is just, a yeah. Well, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Just, a, just it's, it's so, it's so elegant and so much, yeah. so much of what he tells you about his character and his connection with the land and 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 how happily he inhabits in he inhabits that national park is just his physicality. How, yeah. how he commands the space. It's it's amazing. Well, that's how he was first cast in Walkabout. He was a dancer and. A, a very good dancer. Uh, so, you know, he's maintained that elegance of as body. He, as he said in, in a Q&A recently with, with you, a dancer who danced for the Queen of England. Yes. <laughs> Which is something that he's so proud of. Yes, yeah. and, and, that, and that paint became part of Charlie's country as well. They sort of yeah. weaved that into the to the story. It's a, it's a terrific film to restore for, for many reasons, particularly the, you know, obviously the locations and the visual structure of the film. Um, Michael, can you just walk us through um, some of the issues around the, you know, the process around digital restoration? Look, digital, why, why digital restoration? Like the irony being that Stormboy, we have a really beautiful 35mm print or actually more than, more than one film copy in the collection, but it's becoming harder and harder to actually screen films in their original format because most cinemas have um, gone fully digital by now. So the Mercury Cinema here is one of, I'd say, a handful of cinemas in Australia that can play these copies and it becomes harder and harder to replace film copies. So just don't want to bore you with too many technical details, but if we had one of our beautiful film copies now played in the cinema and they put a scratch in it or actually break the print, we would actually have to send it off to Europe or to the United States to get a replacement made because there is not a single laboratory left in New Zealand, Australia or uh, in Asia that can actually do color film. So it's becoming really, really hard and digital and digital cinema packages as they're called, that's the most appropriate and the ideal way now to get those films out to audiences. And is it a very uh, costly process? 
Yes. Yeah, it is. It is very costly because it's you need specialized machinery, you need specialized staff for that. So, so to do something that is not quick and dirty, but proper that you research the best components you take image from the best possible sources you um, get the sound often from many different sources you compare the versions you bring it all together you make sure that every single shot of it, it has the right color all of that i i reckon so the me the median of it is sits at about 40 45000 dollars but it can go up like depending on how much work you need to do you it can go up to 150000 dollars i mean that's that's when you spend years looking for components and really have to piece the film together from various sources Margaret, you're you're part of an advisory uh, panel for the MFSA, uh, choosing which films will next sort of undergo this restoration process. How on earth are you going to decide what Australian? I'm going to pick my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know there are so so many. Uh, you know, I don't know how many. You know, because just from the say the 1970s when I became involved in the industry, and you know we were making gosh, 40 films a year in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, well, that adds up to quite a few hundred, if not thousands of films. Look, at, it's, uh, it, the, the reason why we are so glad to have Margaret on board is there is, there is way more films than we can ever restore. And there is, roughly speaking, like three, three factors how you choose a film. One is... Um, Obviously, and this is where Margaret's great strength comes into play, working with our curators, um, some kind of currency that those films have for the audiences and cultural significance. I mean, in the case of Storm Boy, it is an Australian classic, and as you can see, it is a film that moves generation after generation of Australians. So there is, there is a big cultural significance for it. The second is the components. There's no point in saying, let's restore a film, if you've actually not got the right materials for those films. And the third one is, um, and that's when we put our worry hat on, is when you know that it is, will become harder and harder to actually restore that film because um, the material itself um, is beginning to destroy itself. And film has a limited lifespan. There is, uh, after a couple of years, it just starts degrading. And in many cases, particularly with very early films, we have already lost more than 90% of what was originally there. So just to give you a brief example, um, with Storm Boy, even if you think like this is a big South Australian film corporation production and a classic, when we went back to digitize the sound to put on the picture, we noticed that two of the reels, so um, pretty much up to 20 minutes of the film, the um, magnetic tape that is on the film that has all of the sound on it was beginning the, um, the particles to disengage from the film. So literally, if you shake it, the oxide comes off it, and that means you lose all the sound on it. So what we had to do is put it for a couple of days into a so-called baking oven, where you very slowly suck the humidity out of that, and then you've got one pass, you've only got one go when you can digitize it, and that's it. So pretty much after, after that, all we've got is that digital file. And that's a film that's only from 1976, so imagine how films that have been yeah. kept in worse conditions and films that are older, how difficult it will actually be to get something of them. Sort of mean that the race is on, it's a race against time. It's a race mm. against time, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, Storm Boy came in, in sort of the heart of the Australian um, new wave of the 1970s and 1976, and it, was, and it was one of the films that was directed 
um, by someone who wasn't Australian, at least not Australian-born. Henry Safran was uh, uh, born in Paris. And um, other directors who uh, made classic films in that period who weren't Australian were, you know, films like Wake in, Wake in Fright and, and Walkabout. And I wonder whether that's, um, you know, is that a coincidence or is there something about the way that, say, a, a foreigner sort of views the land that, that communicates so well in these films, Margaret? I think that, you know, coming to this country from elsewhere, it has such a distinctive colour to it, a palette, uh, a texture. Uh, And I imagine that if you come to it fresh and you are a visual artist, you know, you are going to interpret in a very beautiful way. Um, I remember, you know, sort of leaving this country to live in... Europe uh, for a couple of years and, you know, everything is green there and lush and I lived in Michael's country, Austria, for two years. It's a most beautiful country and I sort of disparaged Australia in a way. You know, I thought it was grey and boring in comparison. And then when I came back, there's something that, you know, you look at it with fresh eyes after being away. And you do see the beauty in it. Mm. And it means so much to me now, you know, the Australian landscape, which is why the the film industry means a lot to me because I'm having that landscape, not only the landscape, but that's part of it, reflected back at me. And I find that very nourishing. Um, I love it. It's it's one of the great sort of things about, particularly those Australian films made in the 70s that... The environment and the landscape is very much a character in, in many senses in, in, in many of those films. You, you can see, like, again, as an, as an archivist, the archive, because we've got such a vast collection of film going back to really to Federation days, you can actually track those changes in the way that we viewed Australia and that Australia is represented on screen through those. Like when, you, when, when, when I first saw those films from the 70s, it's actually amazing not only the, the landscape and the people and the real lives of people or let's say the, 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 the darker or more gothic sides of um, Outback Australia, like in Wake and Fright, but actually the language that you hear people speak the way that they speak. And when you think of how long on television and radio people had to put on like a faux um, high English when, when they spoke. And I, I remember like you, you see a film from, from 1971 or 73 and you hear people speak and then you watch a Commonwealth film unit of film Australia film from the same time that goes, Broken Hill is a mining town in New South Wales. Yeah? Like it's completely different and both. And both of it is basically our film history and Australia told to that film history. Yeah? And the same people who made those documentaries then went off and made like um, uh, Philip Noyce and Peter Weir yeah. and then started making, making films that are very different in telling the Australian story. So, so it's, that was one of the things that really struck me. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I think that's what happened in the, in the 70s, actually. Uh, it, was, it was sort of like the, re- the renewal of this country. And it was us gaining a lot of confidence in ourselves, in our artists. Uh, and, and so we used to import newsreaders from New Zealand because they sounded more British. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we were happy to hear our accents on screen on television. 
Um, and certainly I, I, I think the 60s television series most probably had a lot to do with that too. So, and they were enormously successful, you know, the homicides and mm. all of those ones. So, you know, we're, we're getting used to seeing ourselves on screen and hearing us. Yeah, and then it all kind of broke. The dam kind of broke, didn't yeah. it, at the end of the 60s? Something like 20 feature films total were shot in Australia in the 1960s. Uh, that's not Australian films. It's shot in Australia. And then, of course, when it exploded and the Renaissance came in the 70s, we get start getting these sort of vast, sprawling canvases and you know, taking a real sort of sense of national pride. And I guess that's a, that's a good segue uh, of sorts into this year has, has been, uh, in terms of the box office for Australian cinema, um, not adjusted for inflation, the biggest year in the history of Australian cinema, um, which is, you know, quite a significant milestone. And family films, um, I was going to say of the storm boy ilk, but I probably wouldn't say they're quite up there in terms of the, the greatness, but family films have played uh, quite a role in that uh, with Paper Planes and um, Oddball and Blinky Bill uh, taking between them, you know, $25 million or so. Is that right? Yeah. 20, 25 yeah, well, between uh, those three. That's yeah. terrific. Yeah, yeah. 10 for Paper Planes, uh, give or take yeah. a, a couple of hundred thousand. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and 10 for Oddball and, and a few for, for Blinky. Um, and what and about, what to... about Mad Max? How much? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more than both of them combined. Less family friendly, I'd say. But... <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But and well, it, and the year kicked off uh, with the water divide, water divide yeah. you know, which had a very healthy box office. Yeah, and but I mean, last year in 2014, the market share was a lot smaller. And I went back and, and googled some stories around the box office in 2014, and I'll read you out uh, some of the headlines. So just bearing in mind, remembering the 2015 biggest year uh, in in box office history, uh, not adjusted for inflation. Uh, this is from 2014. Headline from the Age. Why don't we watch Australian films? Headline from IF Magazine, Australian cinema in crisis. Headline from the Sydney Morning Herald, is there any hope left for the Australian films at the cinema? Headline, and this is probably my favourite in a very black comedic way, headline from the West Australian, the year Australian cinema died. <laughs> now, that's proven to be not exactly right. Margaret, what, what do you make, how do we make sense of all this stuff, all this noise? Is there a weird hyperbolic... I think so. You know, I mean, in the early 90s when we had Strictly Ballroom and Priscilla and Muriel's Wedding, you know, it was sort of like everybody was going to Australian cinema and thoroughly enjoying it. I, I, you can't make quirky comedies forever that people are going to go and see. And so we went into a much more reflective mode with films like The Boys and Praise, which are not crowd-friendly, really. Uh there's, there's a role for a whole spectrum of cinema in this country. And I think that, you know, last year I, I could have hit people, really. I was so angry with Australian audiences for not going to something like Predestination, mm. the Spirit Brothers film, which was so imaginative, mm. so well done. Uh, the Babadook died a death here and it wasn't until all the overseas critics started saying what a great film it was, that we started taking any notice and by then it was too late. So there's a, there's a real problem in this country, I think, between the films we make and letting people know uh, that they're Australian and they're out there because the blanketing of American publicity is pretty enormous. Yeah, yeah. 
Is it and and reflecting on your your um, many years of you know reviewing films, obviously you still review films to this day. But have you felt a a responsibility or a burden to sort of yell out from the top of the mountain that there are Australian films out there and and damn it, you should, people should go see them. Absolutely, unless they're really awful, <laughs> <laughs> then I don't think you should subject yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, you know, I mean, I I've, I've been a major supporter of the Australian film industry, um, and continue to be so. Which is why you know, being an ambassador for the NFSA, you know, it's sort of like it's a real match for me. I mean, it's, my heart is absolutely in this place and maintaining that gorgeous uh, film and sound history of ours. Uh, so yeah, no, I think. You know, I think critics have got to call it the way it is. But you know in this country how difficult it is to get the money to make a film. Well, pretty much anywhere in the world, mm. the effort that goes into it. No one makes a film cynically these days. They do it with the best intentions. They may not do it with the best talent. But I asked... Um, Gosh, I can't remember his name now, but one of the principals of Focus Features. And they made... They're a boutique. They were a boutique company. They're now owned by Universal. Um, and they only made about 10 films a year. And I said to him, well, out of those, how many would, would be a success? And he said, three out of 10. And I went, but you guys know so much about how to make movies and how to make good movies. I mean, Ang Lee worked... You know, through focus. You know, a lot of really good filmmakers worked through through them. And he said, you know, it just takes one element to be wrong, one piece of casting. You know, you know, a, a script that isn't maybe quite there. You know, music that doesn't work. You know, it's so fragile. Bringing all those elements together to make something that's going to engage with you. Yeah, and I think it's also a, a point worth remembering too that Hollywood doesn't have a magic formula. I mean, uh, as, as superhero movies are pretty close to, to something that they can keep pumping money into and get money from. Uh, but even then, we get spectacular flops uh, at the box office. Fantastic Four was probably a, a recent example. Um, so I think it, uh, it feels like people expect a lot, whereas um, Australian films are you know, at least partly or largely funded by taxpayer uh, bodies so you know we, we we in a sense sort of hope that they're doing more than just kind of playing to the back rows and and, and look so is so is so is the cinema in, in other countries i mean there is a lot of there was a lot of talk among film producers and distributors for instance about the swedish and the danish model yeah saying wow how well does local product and how well does national production actually do at the national box office yeah and it's it's heavily subsidized there too like i come from a country where pretty much every film that is produced is produced with taxpayers money because there is there is a commitment same as here in australia that we need to be able to tell our own stories in our and our own voices and keep our own industry afloat so that new ca people can start having a career here because otherwise the pressure of all of the imported product is just gonna is just gonna squash it and that's that's i mean i'm by no way a historian of of australian cinema but i'm well aware that the local film industry here that was really really strong in the early 20th century and really strong yeah. until the 1910s like locally with a lot of production like from really early use of film from pretty much 1896 on 
to um, the first feature films really got squashed at one point just by the influx of um, product that came in from overseas. And you don't have to be xenophobic, but just to say, look, if it, there's, it's a question, do you make a commitment politically to say we want to have our local industry or do you basically just um, say, look, it's just going to be global high street. What's on our screens, small and big? Yeah, yeah sink or swim. Yeah. No. The market. I mean, it's 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 a question. It's a, it's. A, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get too political about it. But it's a question: Do you want to leave it to the market, or do you invest into bringing stories like this to the screen? And I mean, Stormboy, for instance, was a box office success, yes. and it it obviously is a gift that doesn't stop giving because there are still people buying tickets to see this film. But it wouldn't have been made if it um, if uh, in South Australia at that at that time. In the 1970s, there was such a strong commitment to producing local stories. I guess it's, it's you know, it's a, with specific sort of um, within the context of the last 10 years of Australian uh, cinema. Uh, I wrote for the Guardian earlier this week uh, a piece, essentially um, putting forward a view that, in many ways, uh, this has been a, just a remarkable run of films in the last 10 years. Not only has it been a remarkable run of films, but a lot of them have come from debut filmmakers. So we, we've had, um, we've had uh, Samson and Delilah from Warwick Thornton, first film. Animal Kingdom, David Michaud, first film. Um, uh, Jennifer Kent, The Babadook, uh, first film. And I checked your, your top 10 Australian films uh, list, Margaret, um, oh, which was <laughs> well, that's nerve-wracking. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was published on um, City Morning Herald, and uh, and five of them were, were made from two thousand and five onwards. So um, I'm hoping that you agree with me that in some respects, Australian filmmakers have never been better. Uh, obviously, you, you know. I mean, you learn over time. The trouble with you know Australian filmmakers is that it's a long time between drinks. So you make a film, you you make mistakes, you, you learn from them, but then by the time you get to make the next one, you've just about forgotten everything you learned on the first one. And that's where, you know, the Americans have got an industry. You know, they produce, what, 300, over 300 films a year. Here we're lucky to make, what, now 20, 20, 30? Uh, and a lot of filmmakers like... Um, uh, Andrew Dominic, for example, who made Chopper. Well, his next film, which was, you know, to me a masterpiece, was overseas, but it was seven years before he got behind the camera again. Uh, it, uh, I think you wouldn't want to be a film producer or director in this country and expect to eat regularly. You know, uh, it, it, it's just not... It, it's tough, tough business, heartbreaking business. And the... Uh, I mean, thank God for television commercials, uh, music videos, uh, because that's your bread and butter. You wouldn't want to live off your film income. <laughs> yeah. But that is the interesting thing about people's careers, that, that because, obviously, the, the film industry is is a fairly small and there is a limited number of feature films that come out every year, people have careers that are really diverse. So, I mean, it's so funny, like seeing Scott Hicks, for instance, yeah. in, in here as a runner on Stormboy. And I know that, that then one of the first assignments he had and things that we have in the archive is um, early in excess mu music videos yeah. that he shot, as did Russell Mulcahy, for instance, 
and then going on to make big feature films and now a documentary that opened the festival. John Hillcott as, uh, as well. Yeah, John Hillcott, same same here. But um, the other thing that I find that I find remarkable again, because the archive the archive is a great place because you kind of at the end of the um, exploitation chain of the films and at one stage they'll all come into the archive and you get a bit of a a bit of an bird's eye view of the industry and you see the reason why we've got so many talented cinematographers, set designers, um, editors, etc., is because television keeps a lot of them afloat with work in between and actors who then yeah. go between the big screen and the small screen. Yeah, yeah I, I was having an email conversation uh, the other week with Russell Boyd who you know, run, won an Oscar, cinematographer, won an Oscar for Master and Commander and very long, extensive career, not just here, but abroad, Liar, Liar, all these wonderful Australian films. Backroads from, from the 70s, Starstruck, which is another film that's been restored. Um, and he was saying that his bread and butter after all these years is still commercials. Yeah. Incredible. I can tell you a Russell Boyd story, because it's f- two of the films we restored in the, over the last 18 months, Russell Boyd was the cinematographer on, so that was Gallipoli, Peter Weir's Gallipoli and um, Starstruck. So he got quite used to sitting sitting in the lab with our curators, basically, just si- sitting there with his arms folded, <laughs> and looking at it, and, and I, I remember when we, did, when we did Gallipoli, and we had him in, I think there was this one moment where where he said, ah, we could never get that shot right. I still regret it. It's supposed to be 6 a.m. in the morning, but we, for whatever reasons, only could shoot at 10, and the light is all wrong. The light is all wrong. <laughs> and my, my curator and I were just sitting there, and no one, no one says anything. And then one of the guys who is like the computer whiz kid, yeah, basically says, oh, we can fix that. <laughs> and, and we were just looking at us and saying, oh, please don't, please don't. <laughs> Because like, there's such a fine line with digital technology now that the amazing thing is you can really fix things where time has chipped away at a film and you try to bring it back to what it originally looked like. But it's so easy to overdo it and suddenly fix all of the mistakes that you never that you wished you had never made. So we, we had a great conversation then with Peter Weir and with Russell Boyd and said, Russell, I know it is really tempting to fix that and, and fix the light and fake uh, and make it fake 6am. But in a way, th- your film is a document of what you had to work with and the palette you had to work with. And with Starstruck, he was perfectly happy not to fix anything. Um, but just because like, I mean, the, those candy colors are just so amazing. You can't do much more about yeah. that no. anyway. But it's one of them. It's one of the pressures as an as an archive to not go down that George Lucas route that you go back and suddenly put CGI laser laser beams and creatures that were never in the original film in and ruin what I think like generations of cinema goers thought was a pretty good film by yeah by just overpopulating it um, digitally. And he was the extreme of that too. Not only did he well, quote-unquote, restore uh, his films but change them. But then he, he sort of set out on a mission to try and eradicate all the previous versions. No. So you can't actually get an original version of THX1138 on, D- on DVD. You're uh, joking. So, no, you, you, you buy it. And, oh, and that guy's, very old honestly, film. he's strange. <laughs> he is. Uh, no, he's a, he's yeah. a very strange, strange person. Yeah. I think that's kind of perfectionism <laughs> gone mad. No, he's got no taste. I mean, the, the last... <laughs> He was great when he was young and had a fire in his belly and then he got rich and the last three Star Wars have been pathetic imitations of their younger selves. He wrote them. He can't write anymore. 
you know, he stands behind a monitor. He doesn't, you know, I mean, it's directing from... I know a lot of directors do that, but, I mean, it's like there's this distance. And, and it's, you know, I just sort of... I. I can't, I, I want to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I should be running away right about now. I could see yeah. the furious glint no, in your eye. No, but I mean, why would you want to destroy everything that had yeah. gone before? The originals. I yeah. mean, this no, would be anathema to you. Well, and, and look, that's, I think that's something, Margaret, where, where, where you and the Ark have immediately connected because with your, with your mission against uh, censorship and against basically the intervention into into um, original works yeah. and freedom of speech. Archives have, like, there, there, have been, there have been many periods in the history of film archives where archives were actually under pressure to relinquish their holdings and return them to copyright holders who thought, I mean, that why, why is it that pretty much 87 to 93% of all of the films produced in the first 30 years of cinema have actually gone. Because nobody believed that there was any lasting values and the best protection against piracy is actually if you destroy it. Because then nobody can exploit it and make money off your product. Yeah. And... Uh, it, you would think that had ended in 1927, 1930, or in the 1940s, but f producers have withdrawn their films. I mean, there's the story in the, 19, in the 1950s, 60s, that the Walt Disney Corporation went, uh, went around archives, for instance, the British Film Institute, and basically said, can we get all of those unauthorized copies? Because we would like to get our product back into that vault that we have somewhere in an old salt mine, just basically to control it. And that was the point when archives said, sorry, we've looked up after it. We don't own copyright in that, but we've looked after this for 30, 40 years. We're not going to return those to you. And um, speaking of George Lucas, I mean, there's others who've basically sinned and went back and redid their films when E.T. was reissued, for instance, on film that was, that was even pre-digital and DVD. Um, they excised some of the guns because after 9-11 uh, you didn't want to have cops running around with guns. So they excised the guns digitally from, from the image and um, there, is on, there was only a handful of archives around the world that actually held on to copies of E.T. including one with French subtitles which is pretty <laughs> good. Um, and, and, and you'd think you'd think that everything is freely available but it is not. Yeah? And that's the, that's the interesting thing and it's getting it's becoming more extreme now with digital because you can so easily do everything. But, you know, I also think that, that there has been a growing awareness of how... of, of archiving, of saving stuff. Because I remember, you know, the ABC in television, when we went from black and white to colour, I thought... I think the ABC um, wrote off all its black and white of, of the first series of Rush, for example... Listen, SBS, yeah. uh, all the early rock around the world's gone. You know, it's, you know, so there was this. Even this is in the seventies, eighties. There's this lack of awareness of how important it is to keep keep records of everything, so, and that's not that long ago. Not at all. I mean, one of the things that, that you sometimes think as a media archivist or film archivist is we, we sometimes know more about um, 16th century Italy than we actually know about the beginnings of our entertainment industry or the beginning of the television or radio industries here in Australia because so much of the record is actually lost due to neglect. But do you know, the other thing is that I know why I'm associated with you guys because I never threw out a single interview that I did in 20... 20 <laughs> 
eight years. I, you know, because I knew somehow or other that they were worthwhile preserving. I mean, I was a terrible interviewer in the early days, so I'm going to have egg all over my face if ever they're resurrected. But, you know, I mean, the first ever interview with Russell Crowe on, on the crossing. And I went out to, it was shooting outside Broken Hill or somewhere like that, and it was uh, Robert Mamone and Russell, and I came back and I thought, oh, Robert Mamone's going to be a big star. <laughs> Talk about getting it wrong. <laughs> For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.